world and brought to pass in due time, applying it by your spirit to each of our lives at the time in which you decided was right. And we thank you for it. And we thank you that we can come to you as a loving father. Those of us who are fathers, though we're evil, yet give good gifts to our children. How much more will you give to us the Holy Spirit when we ask you? And so we ask for it this morning. And we thank you for the children that while they have been dismissed at this point to go on to children's church, we thank you for them. And we pray that you would bless them and that we would become more and more like them. For to them belongs the kingdom of God. And we pray this morning, each of us have come from different places and with different needs and with different things upon our hearts. You know, you see, before we even ask. But we ask it this morning, that you would meet each need here. Whatever is weighing upon each heart, we pray that you would provide and meet those needs. This morning, um, for those of us who have come feeling the weight of our unworthiness, remind us of our righteousness, which lies not in ourselves, but in Christ. May we know that you are merciful and kind, long-suffering, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And may we rejoice again in the hope of our salvation. I pray your blessing upon this congregation in Jesus' name. Amen. Our passage this morning, uh, you can find in Acts chapter 1, so if you have your Bibles with you, I'll ask you to turn there with me. I feel so important all this way up in this pulpit. We don't have a pulpit like this, so it's a (laughs) wonderful thing. Acts chapter 1 will be beginning in verse 6. I'll give you a moment to turn there in your Bibles. Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 6, this is the word of the Lord. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John, and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Let's pray that the Lord would bless his word. Father, it was by your word that you were pleased to create the world in the beginning out of nothing. And it is by your word that you are pleased 
to bring life out of the dead, cold heart of man through the preaching of your word and the power of your spirit. We pray this morning that you would transform us by the power of your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. A few months ago, um, I was reading an article about the importance of a certain substance to life on this planet. Now, whether it was a reputable source or not, um, I'm not sure. You might be able to judge. I'm not a scientist, but it was a scientific article. But if you remember from science class in school, there is a balance between plant life absorbing carbon dioxide and releasing oxygen and us breathing in oxygen and releasing carbon dioxide. Well, it is estimated that up to 70% of the oxygen that we breathe comes from marine plants, in specific, a plant called phytoplankton. Phytoplankton apparently is absolutely essential to life on this planet because of the massive amount of oxygen that it releases into the atmosphere. Now, what this article explained was that Recent scientific evidence has proven a connection between a certain substance and the growth and flourishing of this phytoplankton. Apparently, phytoplankton lives on the surface of the ocean, while whales will often dive deep below the surface to feed and then carry vital nutrients to the surface where they expel these nutrients out as fertilizer for the plankton. Without these nutrients being carried from the depths of the ocean to the surface by whales, phytoplankton would not flourish nor produce the amount of oxygen that we depend on to survive. Whale expulsion apparently plays a very important role in life on this planet. Now, if I'm honest with you, I get it. It makes sense. But I just don't think about the importance of this process to my life on a day-to-day basis. Unfortunately, I think for many of us, that is how we treat the Holy Spirit. When we think about it, sure, we realize how vital he is to our life as Christians, but most of us, we just don't think about him much. In our passage, however, Jesus impresses the importance of the Holy Spirit to God's mission in the world and our lives as Christ followers. Let's take a look at it. The disciples gather here to ask about the significance of the resurrection. Let's look at verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? All of the gospel accounts end with an account of Jesus's crucifixion, death, burial, and historic bodily resurrection from the dead, which we remember and celebrate together every Sunday when we gather for worship. But why do we make such a big deal? Why do we celebrate a man coming back to life 2,000 years ago in the Middle East? So what? And that's the same question the disciples here ask as the book of Acts picks up where the gospel accounts leave off. Let me read to you the first few verses. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Jesus had spent the better part of three years teaching and preaching. 
healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, raising the dead, casting out demons, walking on water, calming storms, performing many signs and wonders. And he lived the majority of that time with 12 men that he loved, discipled, and taught. And among the things that he taught them was that he would be betrayed into the hands of the chief priests. They would reject him and condemn him to death, and they would turn him over to the Romans to be mocked, flogged, and crucified. And all the disciples would desert him. But on the third day, he would rise again. And it had all come true, every last word of it. And for 40 days after his resurrection, he had appeared to them. He spoke and walked with them. He ate meals with them, appeared to over 500 of them at once. He had them stick hands and fingers into his nail holes and side. Why? To prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that it was true, that the resurrection had happened. In our very own legal system, someone can be convicted of a single act on a single day and spend the rest of their life in prison or even be put to death on the testimony of a single credible witness with some corroborating evidence or on the testimony of two credible witnesses because it proves guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And that is for one act on one day. Jesus amassed hundreds of eyewitnesses who not only saw, but heard, touched, and ate with him over a period of 40 days. How is that for beyond a reasonable doubt? And here the disciples want to know, what is the significance of all of this? What does it mean? Does it mean you're at this time restoring the kingdom to Israel? It's a good question. What does the resurrection mean? What is the significance of Christ's resurrection to human history for them then and there and for us now? What does it mean for your life today? What should you do about it? Have you answered that question? Have you even asked it? The disciples do. And Jesus tells them the significance is the outpouring of the Spirit. Look at verses 7 and 8. He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus doesn't correct them outright. He doesn't say, I'm not restoring the kingdom to Israel, but instead, which is very Jesus-like and very patient, I might add, he redirects them. He says, that's not yours or for you. The times and the epics are the Father's. They are his to be decided and concerned about. Yours is something else. First, it is the receiving of power by the outpouring of the Spirit. And Jesus had told them this as well a few pages back in your Bible. In John chapter 16, verse 7, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. It was to their advantage, he said, that he go away, that he die, be buried, and resurrected. Because then the Holy Spirit would come and they would be filled with power. The same spirit that had been hovering over the deep in Genesis 1, that at God's word had brought forth the world ex nihilo, or out of nothing, creates life within the dead, cold, fallen, evil heart of man. 
It's called regeneration, recreation, or new creation. It's why Paul calls us new creations in Christ. Regeneration is a supernatural work of God alone, one we don't instigate or participate in. The Spirit takes up residence in our hearts and brings life out of death. The Spirit then creates faith by which we lay hold of Christ and are united to him. Romans says we are united to him in his death, meaning since we deserve to die for being sinners, and Jesus did not, and yet on the cross God poured forth his righteous wrath against our sin on him, his death is accepted as our death. It is as if we die. And while we, our physical bodies may at some point die, we will never die spiritually or eternally. And so by the Spirit, we are united to him in his resurrection. Just as Jesus was resurrected from the dead, not only do we have a sure promise of our own bodily resurrections from the dead, but we also have resurrection life now. The Spirit dwells in our hearts, sanctifying us more and more. The Westminster Catechism says it this way, The Spirit enables us to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. You see the resurrection metaphor there. The Spirit and resurrection are tied together. It is by the Spirit that we walk in newness of life. Romans 6, 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And it is the indwelling Spirit, this resurrection life, which is a down payment of our eternal inheritance in Christ, our eternal life. Now, we've tried to explain some of these things to our children at our ministry over at Mosaic, but the significance of Easter or the resurrection for them is really about Easter baskets and egg hunts and bunnies, specifically chocolate bunnies. And, you know, as parents of children, that's our fault, but it's fun, you know. But the significance of Easter for them is not yet tied to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The meaning of Easter or the resurrection for the disciples was something different as well. Why were they so concerned about the kingdom being restored to Israel? Well, their interactions throughout the gospel reveals that it had a tad bit to do with power, prestige, and glory. They were consistently arguing over which one of them was going to be the greatest. The significance of the resurrection was probably tied for them to a need for comfort, security, stability, ease associated with the blessing of their nation. I'm not so sure that the understanding or significance of the resurrection for our lives is all that dissimilar. How many today view Christianity and the resurrection as being about making our lives easier, more comfortable, more stable and secure? Is the great blessing of the gospel my own personal peace and affluence? My needs for relationship and community being met, being equipped to be a better person, having my best life now. The disciples asked, will you be giving us our best life now? And Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And the Spirit would be power for missions. Let's look again at verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus says here, to the end of the earth. Today, we can travel to the end of the earth by plane in a matter of days. 
or communicate a message basically anywhere in the world via internet instantly with a stroke of a key. I've talked face to face over Skype with a friend of mine while I was in Jeanette, Pennsylvania, and he was in Accra, Ghana, Africa. The ends of the earth means nothing to us. But to them, even if they were to send a letter, someone had to carry it. And Paul, who probably traveled the greatest distance of all of the disciples, he struggled sorely for it. He was shipwrecked. Let me read to you a passage, a piece from 2 Corinthians 11. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. You get the point. The ends of the earth was no small task. And yet, it was the very purpose for the pouring out of the Spirit, so that they might be his witnesses to the end of the earth. You see, the Spirit is power for impossible missions. The Spirit is power for impossible missions. Jesus, after being raised from the dead, says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Matthew 28. And here in our passage, he says the power for that mission is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is a missionary spirit. You cannot have the Spirit and not be on mission at some level. How many Christians have the Spirit? All of them. Anyone, Jesus said, who follows after me will be made a fisher of men. But not only is the Spirit power to us for missions... It is the Spirit's work of converting the lost. We can't reach into anyone's heart. We can't argue anyone into heaven. The conversion of even one sinner to Christ is a supernatural miracle of God likened unto the power exerted at the creation of the world. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. When did he say that? At creation has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's conversion. In 2011, Volkswagen put out a commercial called The Force. I don't know if any of you have seen it, but it features a little boy dressed up as Darth Vader, and he goes around the house trying to use the force on things. He tries to use it on his teddy bear, which doesn't really do anything, and so he drops his head. He tries to use it on the dog, doesn't work, he drops his head. He tries to use it on his lunch, and his mom kind of slides it over to him, and he drops his head. Until his dad pulls into the parking lot, of course, with the Volkswagen, that's the commercial, right? And comes in the house, and the young boy goes outside, and he tries to use the force on the car. And it turns on to his surprise, and he's shocked. And the camera pans into the kitchen where dad with his remote starter has turned on the car, right? This, I think, is how we often view missions. We think it is us who does it, but it's actually dad by his spirit. But the spirit does it through the gospel, through his word, through us as witnesses on mission. And so a greater outpouring of the Spirit means greater revival of missions and conversions. Is this how you view God's Holy Spirit? As a missionary spirit? 
When we pray for God to fill us with his spirit, when we sing songs like God revive us again, when we celebrate the resurrection, this is the implication. Missions, witness, evangelism, disciple making. It is why we are here and God doesn't immediately translate us to heaven upon conversion. So will you go? Or will you sit soak and sour? Jesus told them the resurrection meant spirit-empowered missions, and then he just floated away. Jesus ascended into heaven, verses 9 through 11. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So here they are. They've gathered at the Mount of Olives, the place where Jesus had gone on the night in which he was betrayed, where he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, although this is probably happening on the backside of that mountain near Bethany. And they ask him what it all means. And he tells them he will pour out his spirit from heaven, and then he just floats away like a balloon when you let go of the string. And the disciples stand there looking up the the text says, gazing intently. But why? What are they looking for? Are they expecting something more? I mean, that's it. That's the grand finale. No great fireworks show, no rending of the sky, no bright spectacular lights. And so two angels appear and stand among them and ask, what are you guys doing? Maybe they were wondering where he was going. I mean, where was he going? Well, believe it or not, we actually have an answer in the Old Testament, a picture in the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest donned in his priestly gowns with the names of Israel written on stones on his breastpiece, would enter into the Holy of Holies, only he could enter in once a year and not without blood, and he would take the blood of a sacrifice and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. Hebrews 8 speaks about this earthly tabernacle and says that it was a copy or a picture of the heavenly tabernacle. And then Hebrews 9 actually mentions directly Yom Kippur and says this, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. For the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. That's where Christ went. And in doing so, he purified us. He bore our names on his chest, as it were, into the heavenly tabernacle, sprinkled his blood, as as it were, on the heavenly throne. And then rather than leave as the Old Testament high priest did, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high until all things would be brought into submission under his feet. And then he poured out his spirit. And the result? Revival. 
Acts chapter 2, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And then Peter gets up and he preaches a sermon in which 3,000 people come to faith at one time. You see, the great truths of Scripture that Jesus has ascended into heaven, that he is our great high priest interceding on our behalf even now and is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, that he is enthroned with all authority in heaven and on earth is that he is bringing all things into submission under his feet. Harrison City, Jeanette, Pittsburgh, the United States, Africa, all. 1 Corinthians 15, 25, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And what is 1 Corinthians 15 about, you may ask? The resurrection. The resurrection. Resurrection means the submission of all things to the Son by the gospel going forth, by the power of the Spirit through his people on mission. Let me say that one more time. Resurrection means the submission of all things to the Son by the gospel going forth, by the power of the Spirit through his people on mission. Jesus tells them this, he floats away, and how do they respond? They gather together to pray. Verses 12 through 14. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. The response of the disciples to the great truths that we just looked at And Jesus has promised to pour out his spirit, his ascension into heaven to be enthroned and bring all things into submission under his feet was to withdraw together and pray. Why? Because they knew they couldn't do it. They knew they were insufficient for such a task. They knew that if God didn't do something, if he didn't cause all of this to happen, nothing would happen. The disciples didn't withdraw to the upper room to strategize and plan. They didn't meet to figure out what resources they had and how best to disperse them to reach the end of the earth. Okay, Peter, you stay here in Jerusalem. James, you take a boat to Spain. Thomas, you've got Great Britain and Russia. Anybody want Russia? No, they said, we can't do this. Peter, you're a coward. Thomas, you doubt. James and John, you're a bunch of hotheads. And we're all uneducated Galileans. But God... You're God, and you can do anything you want, in any way you want, with anyone you want. This is what you said you want. You do it, please. Prayer is simply a conversation with God. That's all it is. It's a child coming to a loving father saying, Dad, we need you. It's a humble reliance upon God to fulfill that which he has promised because we are helpless and hopeless on our own. Spurgeon once wrote, the sweetest prayers God ever hears are the groans and sighs of those who have no hope in anything but his love. Psalm 102.17, he regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. So why don't we pray? We don't think we're destitute. By not praying, we say, I got this, God. 
I can love my wife without your help. I can raise these kids. I can solve this problem. I can work this job, live the Christian life, resist temptation, serve like Jesus, reach my neighbors, fix this church, fix my community, plant other churches, make your kingdom come, bring about your will on earth as it is in heaven. I got this, God. I don't need you. I'm guilty. I'm guilty. Lord, have mercy on us. Lord, make us a praying people. Pray that God would pour out his spirit. In 1859, revival broke out in Ulster, Ireland. In this revival, whole towns were awakened. One minister wrote that the problem used to be getting people into the churches. Now the problem was getting them out. The benediction would be said over and over again, but each time people would break forth anew in praise and the weeping of the repentant could be heard. The churches could not even contain all the people coming to pray. Even large buildings began to be insufficient space, and so they began meeting in the highways and the open fields. 20,000 people gathered at the Botanic Gardens at one time. People would crowd into churches at all hours of the day and then send someone to hunt down a minister and have him dragged from whatever he was doing to come and lead a service. Ministers would often wake up in the morning to crowds of people in their homes begging to hear something of the gospel. And who is the man whose preaching sparked such a revival? No one. It was the Holy Spirit. It began by a handful of people gathering to pray for revival. One historian writes, It was a work wrought largely through humble and local means. Hundreds of the men and women who exhorted and prayed and visited with such ardent love for God and souls were mill hands, porters, shopmen, plowmen, and the like. Their ordination was that of the pierced hands. Their testimony was in the power of the Spirit. Their burning zeal itself, a prime characteristic of revival, had no touch of petulance or pride or self-assertion. Their warnings were in the spirit of him who wept over the city that knew not the hour of its visitation. He brought me up also out of the horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock. This was the keynote of all their plain-spoken words." Within two months, Andrew Bonar also found himself in the midst of revival in Scotland. On September 10th, he wrote this in his diary. This has been a remarkable week. Every day I have heard of some soul saved among us. All classes became interested in salvation. Backsliders returned. Conversions increased. And Christians desired a deeper instruction in spiritual truths. Families established daily devotions. And entire communities underwent a noticeable change in morals. Similar changes were, no, changes were noted as the revival spread to Wales, England, and beyond. But the surprising part about this, it was not led by celebrities, but by ordinary people praying. One historian writes, there was an absence of great names connected with the revival. Lay people in prayer were the primary instruments used by God in awakening the people. There are records of one humble Christian woman leading 20 prostitutes to Christ, and it is estimated that over 100,000 people came to faith in Ulster alone. You can't make this happen. No one can. No matter what you do. But God can. Is God less willing to hear the cries of his people today than he was in 1859? What is the significance of the resurrection for us today? Is it comfort, ease, prestige, or glory, security, and personal peace? 
Do we stand together looking up into heaven, waiting for something more, waiting for Christ to return? Or is it spirit-empowered missions and prayer for revival, for God to pour out his spirit? Let your voices ring in the ears of God. To be a church on mission, we must be a church on our knees. God can do more in one instant than we can do in centuries of planning. I'll end with this. I don't know how you parents feel about sleep training, you know, about letting your child cry it out to learn to self-soothe and fall asleep on their own, but honestly, I hate it. It works, but I hate it. But after a couple of weeks when our second-born Uriah was born of fighting us at bedtime, of waking multiple times a night, of spending entire nights in rocking chair, fighting to stay awake, fighting his squirms, kicks, and cries, my wife and I decided that it was necessary for his health and maturity and for our sanity. And so we went through the bedtime routine, bath, diaper, jammies, feed, rock, and then laid him down, awake, and left the room. A few seconds later, the whimpering began, then the crying, and then the blood-curdling screaming. Any of you parents have experienced it, you know. We tried it a few times, and it wasn't long before Amber and I would start fidgeting. And one of us would stand up and start pacing the floor while the other tried to talk them down. You know, this is necessary, it's his best, it's for, we have to do this, it's for his good. But there's something about the cry of your own child. You hear the anguish, and you can't resist for long. God is a better father than you and I. But for some reason, we have lost the persistent determination of our childhood. We give up. We don't let our anguished cries for God's spirit to ring in the father's ears until he can no longer resist. The disciples wanted to know what is the significance of the resurrection. And Jesus told them it was the outpouring of the Spirit for missions, and they cried out for it. Cry like Uriah until he responds. Pray he would make Harrison City like Ulster. Join Mosaic as we cry out for that for Jeanette. Join, form prayer groups wherever you live, work, and play. And pray for the outpouring of God's Spirit. Let's pray for that right now together. Father, we pray, pour out your spirit. Jesus, as we gather every Sunday to celebrate the resurrection, may we remember the significance of it meaning that you have ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father until all things be brought into submission under your feet, and that you have poured out your spirit for that very purpose. And that you have chosen us, jars of clay, to place the glory of your gospel in. To be those that would be your witnesses on mission to the end of the earth. We pray, Father. We pray that you would pour out your spirit. We pray for revival. This is a task that we are insufficient for. We are broken jars of clay. But you are God. And you said this is what you want. And you can use anybody you want in any way you want for whatever you want. I pray you use us. 
to see the gospel go forth, to be your witnesses. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.